That Friday morning, somewhere around 9 a.m., the sounds were heard. That Friday morning, that was the sound of hope dying. And that was the sound of dreams shattering. It was the sound of expectations falling short. It was the sound of faith being lost. It was the sound of regret. It was the sound of betrayal. It was the sound of pain. It was the sound of corruption and guilt and regret. It was the sound of shame. It was the sound of sin. And ultimately that day, it was the sound of death. When those in the crowd walked away that day from the place called Calvary or Golgotha, when the crowd walked away that day, no one walked away Friday afternoon as a follower of Jesus. After 3 p.m. on that Friday afternoon, there were no Christians in the world. Even those in the crowd who knew Jesus best and loved Jesus most, when they walked away, none of them walked away a follower of Jesus. Because there he was, hanging, bloodied, beaten, and dead. And when they walked away, even those who knew him best and loved him most, when they walked away from Golgotha that day, no one left thinking that he was a hero. No one left thinking that he was a Messiah or son of God because he had never looked less like a Messiah. He never looked less like a son of God than on that day because Messiahs don't die. Sons of God don't die. They certainly don't look like that. They don't look like they've been beaten, left bloodied, and left dead on a Roman cross. And so when they left that day, no one left, not even the mother of Jesus, not the friends of Jesus, not the family of Jesus. No one left Golgotha that day singing a song of victory. No one left that day thinking that the cross was anything special. They thought the cross was gonna be a reminder forever of the worst day of their life. It was the day they lost their hope. It was the day they lost their friend. And it was the day ultimately they lost their faith. At the end of that Friday, Jesus was dead. Caesar Tiberius was on his throne in Rome and Caiaphas the high priest was in his temple in Jerusalem and it looked as though death had the last word as it usually does. And when those who knew Jesus best and those who loved Jesus most, when they walked away, they walked away embarrassed. They walked away brokenhearted. They walked away fearful and faithless. And I imagine that they walked away asking themselves this question. How did we get it so wrong? How were we so wrong about him? We thought that he was something that obviously he was not. How could we have been so wrong? Now, three years earlier, Jesus had taken his 12 disciples about 100 or so miles north of Jerusalem in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And there he asked them one of the most profound and personal questions that Jesus would ever ask anyone. And this is what Jesus asked his followers that day. Who do people say that I am? 
Who do people say that I am? And some of his followers there that day, his disciples said, well, if you're asking, we'll tell you. Some folks say you're Jeremiah because you cry some. And Jeremiah was the weeping prophet and they think maybe Jeremiah's come back from the dead. They're not real sure. Somebody else said, no, I've heard John the baptizer. They think you're like John. Both of you have a lot of contempt for the religious establishment. You call them hypocrites, you call them out. You've even called them snakes. So they think you're like John the baptizer come back from the dead. And then somebody else says, no, it's, it's really Elijah uh, because you know folks think you're Elijah because you both, you perform lots of miracles and it's pretty impressive. And people, when they think of you, they think of you sometimes as Elijah. And then Jesus, he turns the table. Jesus turns the table and he looks them straight in the eye and he makes this profound question very personal. And he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And without looking around to see if anybody else had the right answer, it says, Simon Peter answered saying, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And he was right. And that was a big day for Simon Peter because there was a pop quiz from the professor and he got the one question right, he passed and he got extra credit. And in front of all of his friends, no less, and all of his friends are sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, well, we knew the right answer. We just weren't as quick as Simon. Jesus, we knew the right answer too. And Jesus affirms the fact that Simon Peter had the right answer because he looks at Simon and he says, you're smart, but you're not that smart. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, he has revealed this to you. And so that was a big day for Simon Peter. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, back to that Friday. After 3 p.m. on that Friday, if you would have asked them the question again, who is Jesus? Every single one of them without exception would have said, a dead man. He's a dead man. Because their lives had been devastated by a Roman cross. All hope was gone. And the trauma of that day, we can't even understand because we have heard this story so many times since we were, you know, children. We heard it in Sunday school and it was sanitized and it was made all clean and pretty for us because we were children and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't process all that it really was and how it really went down. We have so missed the trauma of that day. We've missed the trauma of the cross, what it was like physically, emotionally, spiritually for Jesus. But we also, we have become immune, desensitized. We missed the trauma of what it was like for those in the crowd that knew Jesus to watch their friend, to watch their son, to watch their brother die such a horrible death. And the trauma of that day left them fearful and faithless. Jesus was dead and they were expecting him to do what all dead people do. Stay dead. So what did they do? They left Golgotha, Golgotha that day, and they went and they sought refuge behind locked doors. And as they walked away with Jesus hanging there, beaten, bloodied, and dead, everything felt final. Everything felt irreversible. And everything felt hopeless. It was over, it was final, what could be done? There's no 2.0, there's not a next chapter. It's irreversible. We can't undo what's been done. He's dead and this is hopeless. But as you know, and as I know, and as anyone who knows anything about history knows anything about the world, in just a few days, 
Their entire perspective about what happened on Friday is going to change. The way that they would see the cross is going to change. The way that they think about Jesus is going to change. And it's going to be a seismic shift in perspective. Now, if you're here and whether or not you believe in the resurrection, you believe in Jesus, say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian or whatnot. If you think yourself an intelligent person, a well-read person, a grounded person with logic and common sense, I know how you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, no reasonable person, no person who has a firm grasp of reality would ever truly believe that a man came back to life. This, this is a bit of a fantasy. This is a bit of outside the world of what really happens. And you would consider yourself a skeptic of the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to say to you, you are in excellent company because the first disciples of Jesus, the first apostles, the first pastors and leaders of the church were the first skeptics. They were the first doubters of it all. And, and these were the people that when they look back in a few days, they are gonna see the cross in an entirely different way. And if you're here and you're just open to history, history shows you that in just a few days, in just a few days, they're gonna think about the cross as something entirely different. And history shows us that the cross of one man, a carpenter from Nazareth, basically became a hinge point in human history. And the world has never been the same. And for some reason, and in some way, the cross became a sign of hope and love. How does that happen? How does the greatest torture device in the history of the world become a symbol of love and of life and of hope? How does that happen? How does something like the cross inspire generosity and kindness and forgiveness and love for your neighbor? How does any of that come from a torture device? That would be the equivalent of us institutionalizing the electric chair, knowing how many lives it's taken, bringing it up in front of the masses and saying, this right here, you know what it is and you know what it was built to do. This is a source of inspiration. This inspires us to hope and to love and to life and to forgive and to be gracious and to be kind. Well, that would be ludicrous. And the same was true of the cross in the first century. So what changed to turn that horrible Friday into what became known as Good Friday? And it's because of something that happened on Sunday. This is how Luke writes about it. Luke says on the first day of the week, now to tell you something about Luke, Luke was a medical doctor. He's left brain, linear thinking. He decided that he was going to investigate the claims of Jesus. So he interviewed all the eyewitnesses. He gathered all the data and he processed it from a reasonable, logical standpoint. And then when he wrote his biography of Jesus that we call the gospel of Luke, he writes in the opening prologue of the book, he says, I have thoroughly investigated all of these things and I'm writing it for you so that you may know the certainty of these things. And so he's writing so that we know the certainty of these things. He says, so on that Sunday, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women, everybody say the women. The women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, this is important. We need to engage with the text a little bit. Why were they going to the tomb? Because this is important. Why were they going to the tomb? They were going with their spices to finish embalming the body of Jesus. Why were they going to finish the embalming of Jesus? Because they believed that Jesus was dead and that he was going to stay dead. These women did not have super duper faith. They did not log on, you know, to Ticketmaster the night before to get front row seats to the resurrection the next morning. They're not there just waiting for it to all take place. No, they're there to embalm the body. Now, this is also interesting for all the ladies here and watching online in the Somerset. In the first century, 
Women were not allowed to testify in court because their word was considered worthless. Now, if Luke, if his goal is to write a believable fable or a believable myth or a believable lie, the one thing that he would not do is make women the first witnesses of the resurrection. But that's exactly the way God wanted it. God wanted women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. You say, why? Because he wanted to make sure other people heard about it. It's Easter, all right, it's Easter. Relax, it's Easter. But women were the first witnesses. He's not writing legend, he's recording facts because this is the way it happened. So he goes on, it says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Again, time out, we need to think about this. The temple got into an alliance with the empire to put Jesus to death because Jesus was a threat to both the temple and to the empire. All that they had to do, and they represented the two most powerful entities in the world. All they had to do to stop this Jesus thing, this Jesus movement that would become known as the church, that would become known as Christianity, was to produce a body, to find the corpse of Jesus, parade it down Main Street in Jerusalem, hail that corpse up and say, hey, here he is, he's dead. And it would have been over. It would have been completely over, but they didn't. They weren't able to do so. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so the women, they go into the tomb, they see the stone rolled away, the body's missing, they got a thousand questions, very few answers. And then all of a sudden two angels show up. And the angel asks this epic question that we hear about most every Easter. And here's the question that the angels ask the women. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And this is a great question and it's important that we know the answer. <laughs> because they're not looking for the living. They are looking for a dead man because they have gone there to embalm a dead man, which the plan was for him to stay dead. And then they make the big pronouncement that we've heard. He is not here. He is risen. Don't you remember he told you about this? He told you in Galilee that he was going to be handed over into the hands of evil men, be flogged, be crucified, raised the third day. And the women are like, yeah, I know, I know. And I think I, I, think I remember you. Remember, I remember. But the women didn't believe at this point. So they did exactly what any of us would do if we were there that day. They pulled out their smartphone and they went live on Instagram, <laughs> right? But they did the equivalent. They did the equivalent of what we would do in our culture. We would want as many people to know and the people closest to us to know as soon as possible. So they ran back to the men, the men who were hiding away behind locked doors, which is interesting because the women are out in public and the men are hiding. It may confirm what we've always thought to be true. Say, Trevor, what's that? I'm not gonna tell you what that is. <laughs> but the men are hiding and the women go back and they tell them the whole story and it says, but the men do not believe the women because their words seem like nonsense. And the word nonsense, it means garbage. It means worthless, unintelligible, incoherent. The women are telling them the story and they're sitting there and they're listening to all this and they're like, ah, I don't know, I don't know. You know, this sounds silly, this is crazy. The closest friends of Jesus did not believe their closest friends when it came to the resurrection of Jesus. The first disciples were the first skeptics. They were the ones who saw it all, heard it all, but they doubted it all. Now, when they hear the message from the women, John and Peter, they start running to the tomb. And we know a little bit more about the story because John writes about it. And he includes something really important that no one else records in their biographies of Jesus. John says that he and Peter ran to the tomb. And then John says, and I beat him there. You say, well, that's not important. It was to John. He's thinking, you know, if you knew what a jerk Peter was, if you know how many times that guy has beat me at everything, you think I'm not gonna tell you the one time that I beat him when it mattered most? And that's what I love about the gospels. They're so authentic. 
And there's so, this is what you would do if you were journaling an event yourself. This is not make-believe and written like myth and fairy tale. It's a completely different genre of literature. And so they're writing these biographies and John says, I got there first. And Luke, he goes on with his story and he says, but Peter, however, he got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and they were all folded neatly. So he knew this was not a tomb robbery. Someone had not come in to see if there were any valuables left in the tomb. He, he knew that this was not that, but he wasn't sure exactly what it was yet. It says, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, John, who got there first, it says that he looked in, he saw, and he began to believe because he, he started thinking about some of the things that Jesus said and he started to believe. But not Peter. Peter is not believing in the resurrection at this point. And I think this is so important. Reason is not Peter's reason for not believing at this moment. Reason is not his reason. His reason for not believing has more to do with him than it does Jesus. Peter's reason for not believing has more to do concerning what he believes about himself than what he believes about Jesus. Because Peter has had a horrific two days. Every day, you know, Thursday night into Friday, Saturday, it's been a horrible time for Peter because he denied Jesus, right? Three times publicly. And I think that as he walked out of the tomb wondering to himself, I think there was a flood of emotion that washed over him in this moment. He's perplexed. He can't hardly make sense. He's having a hard time processing this. And I think he did what any of us would do in that situation. He started thinking back about all of his time with Jesus and He's trying to make sense of all of this. And he thinks back to the first time that he met Jesus when his brother Andrew came and talked to him and said, hey, Simon, because that's what Andrew referred to his brother then. He said, hey, brother, you know, I've been hanging out with John the baptizer down at the Jordan River. The other day, he like pointed thousands of people that were there to hear him preach. And he said, look, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And brother, I went to go meet that guy. His name's Jesus. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. And, and Simon, you're gonna think I'm crazy. But I think he's the Messiah. I think he's the one the prophets promised would come. And, and so Simon, you know, he, he, he does a favor for his brother Andrew and he goes to meet Jesus. And as soon as he meets Jesus, you know, Andrew says, hey, Jesus, you know, Simon, Simon, Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus says to Simon is, hey, you've been called Simon, but from now on, you're going to be called Peter because you're a rock. And I can just imagine Peter was like, yes, I am. <laughs> Andrew, he is very wise. And that was kind of their meeting. That was about the extent of it. And Jesus, he doesn't see Peter in that moment as he is, but he sees him as he could be. And that's great news for all of us, that Jesus doesn't see us as we are, but he sees us for how we can be. And he's much more of a champion for what we can be than he is a detractor for how we are. That's not how he thinks. He's always pointing us in the direction of progress and better. And so Peter goes away that day. A few days later, he's out fishing with his brother, Andrew, because they're entrepreneurs. They own a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. They're there with James and John, who's also got a fishing business business. They're out there fishing. They've been fishing all night. They haven't caught any fish. That's the equivalent for us in our culture of working all week and not getting paid for it. It was a big deal, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, it's daybreak and, and they see a man walking on the shore who yells out there and says, hey, Peter. And Peter looks over there and says, hey, it's that guy. You know, the one that called me rock. It's that guy. It's that Jesus dude. And Jesus says, hey, if you caught any fish, and Peter says, no, I ain't caught no fish. He said, why don't you put your nets on the other side? And Peter, you know, Peter's thinking, you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. You make things, I catch things. Jesus would say, how's that working for you? Why don't you just give it a shot? And so Peter says, okay, sure, whatever. And he puts his net on the other side. And man, what a load of fish they caught. That was the day that Peter started following Jesus. And that was the beginning of the adventure. 
And from that point on, there's gonna be moments where Peter steals the show. I know the right answer, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. There's gonna be times when he wrecks the show and Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but I think when Jesus calls you Satan, that's a bad day, all right? And so he said, get behind me, Satan. I think that Peter thinks about all of this. And I think that he thinks about just, you know, Thursday night, he thinks about what happened in the upper room when Jesus celebrated Passover with them and Jesus taught them and spoke to them in ways, you know, he washed their feet and it was just this incredible thing. And, and there in the upper room, Jesus, he looks at his disciples and he says, I'm gonna die. It's, you know, Peter, Peter, he's, he's strong, he's brass, he's bold, he's alpha. He said, no, you're not. Stop talking that way. I won't allow it. I will fight for you. You're not gonna die. You're not gonna die. If I have to, I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you so that you don't have to die. And Peter believed it when he said it. And Jesus essentially looked at Peter and said, Peter, you don't love me as much as you think you love me because before the morning rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. They leave the upper room and they go to the garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers show up to arrest Jesus. Peter's got a concealed carry, he pulls out his sword and, and he just whacks a guy's ear off and, and it was crazy. But all of a sudden then he realizes what's going down and what's happening. And then he begins to fade off and he follows at a distance as they take Jesus to what's gonna be six trials in just a few hours and every single one of them a mockery. He's gonna to go to the courtyard outside the palace of Caiaphas where he's gonna deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times and on the third time he's gonna curse his name. And when he denies Jesus the third time, this is what Luke says, says, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. That night in the upper room when Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And then he went out and wept bitterly because that's what you do. That's what you do when you do the thing you said you would never do. That's what you do when you say the thing that you said you would never say. That's what you do when you sink low to the place that you said you would never sink to. He went out and wept bitterly. You ever been there? You ever had one of those moments? You ever had one of those seasons? He goes out and he weeps bitterly because he knows that if he could rewrite the story at this moment, he would rewrite it, but he can't. If he would forget what he just did, he would, but he can't. This is now the worst moment in his life. This is now the biggest regret in his life. And if he could change it, he would, but he can't. So he weeps bitterly. He's disappointed in himself. He knows he's gonna be a disappointment to the others. And he fears most of all that he's a disappointment to Jesus. We're not sure if Peter was there Friday at Golgotha. I think it's possible that he was. I think it's possible that he may not have been. But one thing is for certain, sometime shortly after three o'clock on Friday afternoon, someone found Peter and said, Peter, Jesus is dead. And if it wasn't bad enough already, the bottom just fell completely. Because Peter knew in that moment, he had failed. It was public and Jesus was dead. And as Peter walked away a little after three, sometime on Friday afternoon, 
from the news that Jesus was dead. To Peter, personally, everything felt final. Everything felt irreversible and everything felt hopeless. It was over. What could he do? It was irreversible. If he could turn back the hands of time, he would, but he can't. If he could undo what has been done, he would, but he can't. If he could go back to the courtyard and do it all over again, and when they ask him, do you know him? If he could, he would have stood up and said, yes, I do. I followed him. He's my rabbi. He's my teacher. I'm with him. He's my friend. But there was no reduce. It was irreversible. And it all now felt hopeless. There was no hope of making it right. There was no hope of going and looking Jesus in the eye and saying, forgive me. I'm sorry. I can't believe I did the thing that I said I would never do. This is not who I am. This is not what I ever wanted to do. Forgive me. There was none of that. His heart was shattered. Guilt and shame like a plague. That's how Peter felt the morning the women went to the tomb. Mark records his gospel based on interviews with Peter. And Mark includes a special piece of information for all of us that Luke doesn't record. It's something that the angels said to the women that morning. And this is what Mark records. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Because the angels knew if anybody needs to know, if anybody needs to hear that Jesus is alive this Sunday morning, it's Peter. Go tell the others, but make sure you go tell Peter. Peter's in a bad place. Peter's in a dark place. Make sure you go tell Peter. Now we know because of the other gospel narratives that Jesus went looking for Peter because that's just how Jesus is. And they had a meeting. It was one-on-one -on -one and it was private, but whatever happened, it wasn't good enough for Peter to believe yet. So Peter, he did what only he knew to do. He went to Galilee and he went fishing. He took his other friends with him, the disciples of Jesus. And I imagine only like men could do, they would fish all night and perhaps not say a word. Some of them angry, some of them frustrated, some of them disillusioned, some of them in numb and shock. Peter perhaps feeling all of those emotions plus the guilt and the shame of where he is. And perhaps some of them with silent tears running down their cheek, they fish all night and they don't catch a thing. That morning as the sun begins to rise above the Galilean hillside, a man is walking along the shore and yells out to the disciples, have you caught anything? Peter says, we've not caught anything. And the man on the shore said, why don't you put your nets on the other side. And it was all so wonderfully familiar to Peter. He had heard that voice before. He jumped in the water and he swam to shore and he ran to Jesus. The other disciples would come along in a few minutes and they would have breakfast with Jesus on the beach. And that's where Jesus will restore Peter with three simple questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I imagine Peter, Imagine Peter could have said to Jesus, what do I need to do to make this the right? What do I need to be? What do I need to do to be okay with you again? What do I need to do? Is there a penalty to pay? What do I need to do to make this right? And Jesus would say, 
Peter, don't you get it? When I died, I died for you. I died for your sin. I died for all of your sin. I died for the sin of the world. Peter, don't you understand? I carried that sin. I died to sin. I died for your sin. Peter, I've loved you at your best moment. That day at Caesarea Philippi, I was so proud of you. Peter, I loved you in the courtyard when you denied me. And I didn't love you more over here than I loved you there. There's nothing you can do, Peter, to make me love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. Don't you get that? I've done what you need to do in order to be okay with your God. And Peter's restored. Jesus says, I'm not mad at you. I love you. I've loved you at your worst. I've loved you at your best. And in that moment, guilt gave way to grace. And failure gave way to forgiveness. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, follow me. And Peter did. That was the moment it changed for Peter. It became personal to Peter that day. Peter goes on. He preaches the first Christian sermon to the very men that killed Jesus. And he got an opportunity to own Jesus publicly again. And he said, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead and has made him both Lord and Christ. Peter writes letters to Christians and he tells them about a love of God that covers a multitude of sin. He writes about hope that's tied to the resurrection. But in 67 AD, 30 some years later, after that Friday and after that resurrection, Peter is a prisoner of Emperor Nero in Rome. Church tradition says his wife is also there. They're awaiting their own crucifixion. They're being put to death, not because of what they believe, but Peter is gonna be put to death because of what he believed he saw. And as the Praetorium Guard came to their cell that morning, and as they walked to the place of their own cross, as tradition says his wife was crucified before him, but on the way to his own cross, because of what had happened, I imagine as Peter walked outside the city of Rome that day to a place we do not know where it was. I imagine as he walked there that day, nothing felt final, nothing felt irreversible, and nothing felt hopeless because the resurrection had changed everything. Peter followed, he fell down, he got back up and he followed unto death because the resurrection made all the difference to Peter. It made all the difference to the disciples who went from being fearful to fearless, faithless to faithful. They went out and the world changed. And it made all the difference to all the world. Because now when we look back at the cross, we look back through an empty tomb. And no longer is it the sound of death, but now is the sound of life. Now it's no longer the sound of guilt, but it is the sound of grace. It is the sound of forgiveness. It is the sound of peace. It is the sound of rest. 
restoration. It is the sound of being made right with God. It is the sound of regrets being redeemed. It's the sound of marriages coming back together. It's the sound of prodigals coming back home. It's the sound of eternal life. It's the sound of a better life. It is the sound of a promise being kept. And it's the promise of God saying, I'm not angry with you. I love you. Jesus took what looked final and made it a brand new beginning. Jesus took what looked irreversible and reversed it. And he took what looked hopeless and he turned it into a symbol, not of death, but the cross became a symbol of the end of death. So if the resurrection is true, what feels final, it isn't. If the resurrection is true, what feels irreversible isn't. Because of the resurrection, if it's true, what feels hopeless isn't. It means that beauty can come from the ashes, that death will give way to life, that regrets can be redeemed, that grace is greater than guilt, and there's always forgiveness no matter the failure. If the resurrection is true, Jesus is who he says he is. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And it means we have to take everything he said seriously. We can't pick and choose what we like or don't like. If the resurrection is true, I don't have to be afraid of death. And when I walk through the valley of death, I don't have to fear it because he'll be there. And in that moment, he'll perhaps look at me and say, I've been this way before. And it's not final. And it's not irreversible. And it's not hopeless. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything for you. It means God exists. It means God has a plan for your life. It means that sin is devastating. But it also means that God walked towards us in our mess. He walked towards us when we walked away. It means God's not angry. God actually loves you. He's loved you at your best. He's loved you at your worst. He's loved you the same in both moments. And he says, to receive this gift of grace in life, all you have to do is believe, not behave. Just believe. So here's my question to you. What happened that Sunday? If you're here and you say, I believe it, I'm a follower of Jesus, then here's my question to you. How can you continue to let Jesus just merely be important and not most important? How long are you gonna play games with your faith? How long are you gonna allow Jesus to play in the backseat of your life behind everything else that comes before him? If Jesus really is who he says he is, if what happened on Sunday morning, Easter really happened, then how can he not be most important? If you're here and you don't believe, let me ask you a question. Do you want to? Because if you don't wanna believe, there's nothing anybody can say to convince you otherwise. But if you don't believe and you say, I'm open, I'm open, here's what I think. I think God just may speak to your heart this morning. I think maybe he just nudges you. And it may not be lightning and thunder. It may not happen the way you heard it was supposed to happen in childhood. But perhaps it's a whisper. Perhaps it's a nudge. So let me ask you a question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because if Easter is true, it means because of Jesus, there's nothing final, irreversible.
Father, I pray that you would speak to us in this moment. Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? Would you penetrate behind our walls? Would you distract us only by yourself? God, would you not allow us to to throw up self-defense mechanisms? And God, would you not allow us to talk ourselves out of something that we know we desperately need to do? For those who need to recommit their life to Jesus today, that they're followers of Jesus, but he's not been most important, I pray that they would take that step of recommitment today. For those who don't believe but are open, I pray, God, that in whatever way is best for them, that you would nudge them in your direction today. Speak to us, God, as only you can in this moment. In Jesus' name.